By now you've done your Christmas shopping, I assume. You have sent your cards out. You know what your schedule is for the next couple of days, where you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be feeding, who's supposed to be feeding you. You've done all the shopping. You've done the prep work. And everyone's feeling like super relaxed tonight, I assume. You all feeling super relaxed? You're ready for Christmas? You know, I love Christmas. I love spending time with family and friends. But there's certain things about Christmas that I can't say I really like that much. And one of them would be certain elements of Christmas shopping. This is why I generally just like delegate it to my wife because she tends to like that. But one of the things that I, a little bit of a pet peeve of mine is on Christmas when you, you know, you've, you've, you've read the flyers, which are telling you that all the products are like super awesome. You perhaps have watched the advertisements on television. You maybe even have done some Google reviews to find out if these products are what they're promoted to be. And you go to the store and you buy whatever it is that you want. And you come to the cash register and you're about to pay for the product. And then what do they ask you? Would you like to buy the extended warranty? Now, this is the way my head interprets that. Okay, so you're, you've advertised that your product is awesome. You've invited me into your store. You've promoted your product. You've put a price tag on it that you think is reasonable. But really what you're telling me at the till is that I shouldn't trust your product. And if I want a product that's going to last, I have to pay you more money. Is that not kind of how we interpret that? These extended warranties? And why is that? Because few people in the world want to promise you anything. They don't want to promise you. They don't want to make guarantees. They want to protect themselves. In fact, we live in a world that is chocked full of broken promises. Broken promises that were made at the marriage altar. Broken promises in business. Broken promises from politicians that were so desperate for your vote that they would tell you anything you wanted to hear. This world is filled with broken promises, with people that do not do what they say they're going to do. And because of that, it's natural and normal to be a little suspicious, to maybe not be as trusting as we otherwise would be. And then comes our relationship with God. And we hear God in his word delivering to us promises and guarantees of things yet to come. And it it may be that because we live in a world filled with broken promises that we may sort of assume that God is not necessarily that good at keeping his promises either. That may not come out of our mouths, but deep inside the recesses of our hearts, we may lack the confidence that is available to us in Christ. We may lack hope during the challenges of life because we've not really like anchored ourselves deep in the promises of God and chosen to believe them because the one who has issued those promises to us has yet to ever, ever, ever renege on a guarantee or break a promise to his people. That's, that's a fact. What is God like? God is a promise keeper. What God says, God does. What God offers, God actually gives. And the benefits of that are truly out of this world. For the last three messages, we've just been studying one verse in the Bible, notably the most famous verse in the Bible, John chapter 3, 
verse 16. Everybody seems to know John chapter 3, verse 16. And a couple of Sundays ago, I preached the first statement out of that. Last week, a few days back, I preached the second statement. And today I want to preach from the third statement of John chapter 3, verse 13. I'm sure that many of you have memorized this in various English translations of the Bible. But this is how it's written and translated for us in the English Standard Version. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That first statement is shocking. When you consider the grandeur of God compared to the pitifulness of humanity, And what we have done to shun him and push him away and offend him and rebel against him and blaspheme him. It's a shocking statement. For God so loved the world. This is a declaration in scripture. That declaration of I love you is followed by a demonstration. God says I love the world and now I'm going to tell you how I love the world And why I love the world. And he goes on to say then. That he gave his only son. This is a demonstration of God's love. And then finally we have this final phrase here. Which I'd like to explore with you tonight. That whoever believes in him should not perish. But have eternal life. So the question is. Will you accept it and believe it? First message. It's a declaration of God's love. Second message, the demonstration of God's love through Christ. Tonight is decision time. Have you believed it? Have you received it? Are you staking your life on it? Are you trusting that what God says is actually true? God's promise to humanity based upon his love, guaranteed and warranted because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, is that whoever believes in him, should not perish, meaning die, but, in contrast to that, should have eternal life. This is the Father's love being declared to us. The eternal Son is the sacrifice that guarantees, what? That guarantees that each of us in this place can leave this room tonight And spend the rest of our lives, whether it's another day or another 70 years, knowing that we are eternally assured of our salvation because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. It is the son's sacrifice that guarantees that. And it's an offer that each of us can receive in faith and be blessed by. So here's the question we need to be thinking about tonight should be rattling around in your head already. And that is this. Do you possess a promise of life to come? You possess it. Like, do you own it? Do you believe it? Is it yours? Do you hold it in your hand? Do you cherish it in your heart? Does it stir your worship? Does it stabilize you when life gets unstable? Does it give you peace when there's violence and destruction, and turmoil all around you? Do you possess, do you own the promise of eternal life? It's available to you. Are you sure that you are a son or a daughter 
of the King of Kings as we've sung tonight. You know, in life, there's a lot of things you can forget about, and it's not going to really make that much of a difference. You can forget to put snow tires on your car. Chances are you'll be fine. Snow tires are good, but we do live in south, 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 western Ontario. Chances are you'll be fine. Forgot to put my snow tires on. Maybe you'll slide into the back of a car. I don't know, but you should probably be able to make it through a southern Canadian winter without snow tires. You can forget your lunch. And you might be a little hungry for a few hours, but when you get home, you can have some supper. You can forget to hand in an assignment at school. And you may go from an A plus to an A or a B plus to a B, but chances are you'll pass. And even if you don't pass, it's not like the end of the world and your life's over because you failed a course. You can forget the stuffing. And your family member might say, hey, normally we have stuffing. Where's the stuffing? Oh, man, I, forgot. I knew I forgot something. I forgot the stuffing. But they'll forgive you. And you can still enjoy Christmas together. There's a lot of things you can forget. There's a lot of things you can ignore. There's a lot of things you cannot know. And you can still live a reasonably successful life. But one thing that we cannot, 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 absolutely cannot fail to consider is our eternal destiny. This, it's amazing how many people don't think about this. I've driven in funeral coaches to cemeteries after having preached funerals. And as I try to share my faith with the funeral director, a lot of them aren't even thinking about what's to come. And they deal with death every single day. But this is something we cannot afford to overlook. It's something we cannot afford to forget. You know what we all have in common? Because we're here tonight, we were born, we were born, some of you a long, long time ago, some of you much more recently, but we were all born. There was a time, though, when none of us existed in not so far off history. None of us were around. A century ago, none of us were here. Humanity was rolling along. We hadn't yet been created But now we're here. But you know what? From the moment that you are conceived, think about this. You will never, ever cease to exist. You will never cease to exist. You may get 50, 60, 70 years of physical life in this world, but you are created as an eternal being from here forward. And you will either enjoy eternal life in the presence and the abode of God forevermore, or eternal separation from God because of the sins that you have committed and your rejection of his sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when you think about the fact that you will never, ever, ever cease to exist from here forward, what sense does it make not to consider what's going to happen past the 70 or 80 or 90 year mark? It makes no sense whatsoever. In this context, a man by the name of Nicodemus was obviously curious about his eternal destiny. And so he sneakily comes to Jesus by night. And he says, hey, Jesus, I know you're a great rabbi and the things you do are amazing. And Jesus starts to have a conversation with him about his need to be born again. 
And Nicodemus is confused by this. What does it mean to be born again? How can a man enter a second time into his mother's womb? He asks. He's very logical. He's very matter of fact. He's thinking of the physical world. And Jesus says to him that you must be born again. Eternal life should be our greatest concern. Do you possess it? Do you hold it? Now in this final statement of John chapter three, verse 16, the promise that God offers to us is unpacked and delivered. And there's several things about this statement that are very meaningful and can energize our minds and our hearts and give us perspective on life. The first thing I would like to point your eye to is the word whoever. This reminds us of what the believer receives, or for those of you that are believers, what you have already received. Whoever. This doesn't mean that everyone will believe. And sadly, it doesn't mean that everyone wants to believe. Whoever, however, introduces us to the benefits that are available to everyone who does believe. If you believe, you will receive. Believe what? Believe that God sent his only son as a sacrifice for your sin. In other words, if you're an unbeliever and you want eternal life and you're like, yeah, but how do I harness or get a hold of eternal life? This is the answer to your question. Here's how. Through trust and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you already have eternal life because you've trusted in him, this is a reminder of why you have it. Because you know what? The thing of it is, is after you've been a Christian for a long time, you can start to sort of think that, well, I, I'm, I'm pretty good. I've sort of worked a lot of things out. I'm clearer in my thinking than I used to be. My, my language is kind of cleaned up. My actions are good. And you can start to harbor some self-righteousness. Think, well, I, I'm, I'm kind of a big deal. And John 3.16 should be read and reread and reread even by the believer because it reminds us that our eternal life is not grounded or founded in us but on what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us. So this is an invitation to the unbeliever and to the believer to consider what we have received or can receive. Secondly, it teaches us who the believer trusts in. Whoever believes in him, who's the him? The him is Jesus. What is the substance of our faith. Think of the word faith as it's commonly used in culture. When people say to me, oh, you're a man of faith. Oh, you have faith. Or people say, oh, you should just have faith. I, I get this sense that for most people, faith is kind of like a sentiment. It's like faith is good. It kind of adds some color to life, but it's not really substantive at all. It's sort of like a step into the unknown. It's kind of like hoping and wishing and really hoping and really wishing. And faith makes nice people for the most part, but there's nothing really substantive to it. That's not a biblical definition of faith. Faith is very substantive according to the Bible. 
The kind of faith or belief that this verse is calling us to is faith in the historical accomplishments of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ actually accomplished what the Bible says he accomplished. God actually gave his only son as a sacrifice for my sins. He actually did that. Our works, on the other hand, by contrast, are absolutely powerless to perfect us. A fly in the ointment ruins the ointment. It's like, well, what's, what's God's quota? Like, what are the maximum number of sins and transgressions I can commit before I don't get to heaven? Murder, maybe? Serial killing? Adultery? What's, what's the top end of sins that God allows or permits? You know, in school, like if you get an 80, you pass. It's a pretty good grade, right? But that means you actually failed 20% of the course. You get like a 99, you're like, you're a genius. But you still actually failed by 1%. God's standard is absolute perfection. The eternal God of the universe will not allow a person that's even committed one singular microscopic sin into his eternal abode. So that means all of us are done for. Does it not? means all of us are done for. But being rich in love, God came up with a solution. And a solution was to send the perfect God-man into this world to be punished and pay for our sins so that we might be reconciled to God. Before Christ's perfection, we stand condemned, but through his perfection, we can find eternal life forevermore. Now we often talk in our church about the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. The person is like, who is Jesus? What makes Jesus capable of paying for my sins in a way that I cannot? Well, he's the creator. He spoke the world into existence. He is morally perfect, meaning he's never sinned. He's absolutely perfect, meaning he's incapable of sin. He is God. That's kind of a big one. He's the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. There's no one like him. So when we believe, we're believing in substance. We're believing in a historic Jesus that actually accomplished things for us. And then we're also trusting in his works. What did he do? He was the eternal sacrifice for our sin. He was death's conqueror. He actually rose from the grave, conquering death forevermore. What the believer receives, who the believer trusts in. Thirdly, what the believer is freed from. The text says, shall not perish. That's categorical. That's a promise that you can stake your life on. Here's what we all have in common, as I've already reminded you. We were all born, and we all die. Each of us, minimally, will be born once, and we will die once. But there's more to life than that. There's more to life than that. Did you know that you can also be born twice and or 
die twice. But according to the Bible, you can't have both. You can be born once, and you can die once. In addition to that, you can be born twice, or you can die twice, but you can't be born twice and die twice. Here's why. As a human being, you are composed of a body, a soul, and a spirit. Your body's obvious. It's the organic creature that is you. It was created by your mother and father in your mother's womb. Your body. Now, your body is dying. How do we know that? We don't even have to go to the Bible for that. Human history proves it. Everybody dies without exception. You're also a soul. You have a life force. You have a mind. You have a personality. You have a will. You have desires. That's the you. And then you have a spirit. You're a spiritual being. You have an innate notion that there is something greater than you. This is why we say in our church, atheists say there are, there is no God. The Bible says there are no atheists. God has made it plain to all people through his invisible attributes that there is a creator to whom they are accountable. The problem is, is back in the day when our great, 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 great granddaddy Adam sinned, we all spiritually died. And so from conception, we're born spiritually dead. You can read about that in Ephesians chapter 2. But God, by his grace, when he comes upon us in power and spiritually rebirths us, the word for this in theology is he regenerates us. Our spirit is now made alive in Christ, and we become complete beings, bodies alive, souls alive, spirits alive once again. But then life goes on, and eventually, as our physical bodies wear down, we eventually die. That's the reality for every person in this room today. God, however, reminds us that in the end, those of us that have trusted in him will experience a bodily resurrection In the meanwhile, Jesus says to us through his word in John chapter 3, you must be born again. So when you take all that into consideration, what we conclude is that there's only two options available for us. We are either born once and we die twice. Or we are born twice and we die once. That's it. There's no third option. You're physically born. If you're never spiritually reborn, you die physically and you die spiritually. But if you're physically born and also spiritually reborn by trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will die physically, but you'll never die spiritually. Which would you rather receive? Again, there's no third option. Have you been born again? And then finally, we have this awesome truth, what the believer possesses. The text is very specific. Specific. It says we will have eternal life. That's in the here and now. Have is a possession word. We have it. We hold it. 
And because we have it and we hold it, we have what? What do we have? We have assurance. We have confidence. And we have hope. Who wants some of that? I want some of that. And I have that, not because I'm a moral person, not because I pastor a church, not because I read my Bible, not because I got wet in a baptistry. I have that because I have believed in the eternal son of God who died in my place for my sins. So I've been born twice. And that means I'm only going to die once. But even on the other side of that, I have confidence in a bodily resurrection. We have it. We possess it even now. Have you ever finished a degree or a certificate or a diploma and then you had to like wait a long time until you graduated? So I remember one time I completed something, I think it was in January, but I had to wait till May or June to actually graduate. But you know what? I wasn't worried about that because if I fulfilled the requirements that the educational institution put out, I wrote my papers, completed my final project, passed everything. I'm waiting to graduate, but I'm not chewing my fingernails down to the bone, like wondering, am I actually going to get my degree? Am I actually going to walk the stage? No, I know it. And, And in the same way, while we haven't been to the graduation ceremony yet, that happens after death, We can have eternal life in the here and now. We can possess it. We can say, I I have eternal life. I don't say that in some cocky way, like I earned it. I was super awesome. God noticed me. But because I'm trusting in what Jesus Christ has done for me. Eternal life without end. This is like back to Eden. God's going to take us back to the state that he originally created us to live in. Likewise, so this is the opposite. Likewise, you do not have what you have not believed in. So let's talk about some lies. You know, there's some liars out there. There's some liars out there. Some of them are leaders in false religions, even in Christian churches. They peddle lies. And you hear these lies, especially during challenging times in life. You know where I hear a lot of lies? At funerals. A lot of lies are told at funerals. You go to a funeral, you know the person wasn't trusting in Jesus, couldn't stand God, had nothing, no interest in God whatsoever. But they start talking about them being in heaven, and there's jokes told, and The stories are told and there's this whole assumption that they're in a better place. No, they're not. That's a lie. That's a lie. You don't have what you have not believed in. You don't have eternal life if you've rejected the only one that can give you eternal life. That's a lie that needs to be identified. Another lie would be, and I think this is increasingly the case. That's why I've mentioned it in several sermons recently is like self-belief. Just believe in yourself trust in yourself, believe in yourself. It's like, that's not, what's the object of my belief? Just have faith. Just be a person of faith. Just be a person who's optimistic. That's a lie. Not to mention it's nonsensical. And then another lie would be, well, good deeds or religious 
ritual will get you to the eternal abode of God. And you know what? The reason why, and what I'm preaching tonight, by the way, is called the gospel. The reason why even born-again people need to hear the gospel preached and re-preached is because the longer the period of time becomes that we've received eternal life, the greater the temptation that we can become self-righteous. Because when we're born again, God actually begins to stir our hearts. Our stinking thinking starts to be reduced. The, the bad attitudes start to go away. The, the foul language starts to go away. Our confidence in Christ starts to increase. And the longer the gap between your salvation experience and the now, the greater the temptation is to start, kind of forget who you were and start to think, well, I am who I am because, you know, I, I've been in church for a long time. I've read my Bible a lot. I've prayed a lot. I, I've, I've, I've contributed to the, to the needs of others a lot. And you can start to become self-reliant and self-righteous. That's why it's a truism that sometimes the churches with the greatest amount of self-righteousness and hypocrisy are the ones that are clearest on their proclamation of the gospel. Think about that. So we have to be careful. This is why the believer who believes that this is true and has surrendered their life to Jesus has to continue to remind themselves of how they got to where they're at. And it's called grace. And grace alone. Good works won't get you there. Self-belief won't get you there. And heaven is not automatic. But you can get there. You can have and possess eternal life by believing in the only Son of God that came into this world, praised God, and died for our sins on our behalf. If you are in this room tonight and you're not a believer, I would encourage you to put your faith in Jesus, to believe in him and receive him as your Savior. What do you have to lose? I'll tell you what you have to lose. Meaninglessness. Depression. Hopelessness. Self-rule. Which never goes well for you, by the way. We, we all love to be like the captains of our own souls, as they say, the masters of our own fate, and we always mess it up. You lose all of that. And what do you gain? Meaning, freedom from sin, the ability to overcome temptation, hope, and the assurance of eternal life. Who wants some of that? That's what I want. Because I know that while I was born way back in 1973 and reborn in 1979, I will now be in existence forever and because I've trusted in Jesus Christ, I know who I will spend my eternity with. And frankly, the older I get, the more I'm looking forward to that. So having heard this, those that may not yet have trusted, the invitation is issued to you as it's been issued time and time again for the past 2,000 years. Trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Believe in him. Confess your sins. Repent, turn from them, and believe, and you will be saved. And if you would like to have further conversations about that, come and see me after the service or talk with the person who brought you or look us up online and send us an email or 
call our church, and we'd love to have a further conversation with you about that. And to those of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ, rejoice. Rejoice in what he's done. Rejoice in what he's accomplished. Praise him and honor him with all of your heart, body, soul, and strength to the glory of God and to the benefit of yourself. Amen.